Chapter Nine of the False Faces. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Steve Chilvers. The False Faces by Louis Joseph Vance. Chapter Nine, Sub C. When he opened his eyes again, he was resting after a fashion naked between harsh damp blankets in a narrow low-ceiled bunk inches too short for one of his stature after an experimental squirm or two he lay very still his back and all his limbs were stiff and sore his bullet-seared shoulder burned intolerably beneath a rudely applied first-aid dressing and he was breathing heavily long labouring inhalations of an atmosphere sickeningly dank close and foul with unspeakable stenches for which the fumes of sulphuric acid with a rank reek of petroleum and lubricating oils formed but a modest and retiring background also his head felt very thick and dull he found it extremely difficult to think and for some time indeed was quite unable to think to any purpose. His very eyes ached in their sockets. In the ceiling glowed an electric bulb, dimly illuminating a cubicle barely big enough to accommodate the bunk, a dresser, and a small desk with a folding seat. The inner wall was a slightly concave surface of steel plates, whose seams oozed moisture. In the opposite wall was a sliding door, open beyond which ran a narrow alleyway floored with metal grating everything in sight was enamelled with white paint and clammy with the sweat of that fetid air over all an unnatural hush brooded now and again accentuated by a rumble of distant voices and gusts of vacant laughter once or twice by a curious popping for a long time he heard nothing else whatever the effect was singularly disquieting, and did its bit to quicken torpid senses to grasp his plight. Sluggishly enough, Lanyard pieced together fragments of lurid memories, reconstructing the sequence of last night's events, scene by scene, to the moment of his rescue by the U-boat. So, it appeared, he was aboard a German submersible, virtually a prisoner, though posing as an agent of the personal intelligence department of the german secret service to that inspiration of failing consciousness he owed his life or such of its span as now remained to him a term whose duration could only be defined by his ability to carry off the imposture pending problematic opportunity to escape and assuming that this last were ever offered him there was no present possibility of guessing how long it might not be deferred its butcher's mission successfully accomplished the u-boat was not improbably even now en route for heligoland beginning a transatlantic cruise of weeks that might never end save in a nameless grave at the bottom of the four seas only the matter of impersonation failed to embarrass in prospect a natural linguist, Lanyard's three years within the German lines, had put a rare finish upon his mastery of German. More than this, he was well versed in the workings of the Prussian spy system. 
as Dr. Paul Rodiak, Wilhelmstrasse agent number 27, he was safe as long as he found no acquaintance of that gentleman in the complement of the submarine, for, largely upon information furnished by Lanyard himself, Dr. Rodiak had been secretly apprehended and executed in the tower the day before Lanyard left London to join the Assyrian. But the question of the U-boat's present whereabouts and its movements in the immediate future disturbed the adventurer profoundly. He was elaborately incurious about Heligoland, and several weeks' association with the Bosch in the close quarters of a submarine was a prospect that revolted. Well nigh any fate were preferable. Uncertain footsteps sounded in the alleyway, paused at the entrance to his cubicle. He turned his head wearily on the pillow. In the doorway stood a man whose slenderly elegant carriage of a Prussian officer was not disguised, even by his shapeless wreck of a naval lieutenant's uniform. A man with a countenance of singularly unpleasant cast, leaving out of all consideration the grease and grime that discoloured it. His narrow forehead slanted back just a trace too sharply. His nose was thin and overlong, his mouth thin and cruel beneath its ambitious moustache a la Kaiser. His small black eyes, set much too close together, blazed with unholy exhilaration. As soon as he spoke, Lanyard understood that he was drunk drunk with more than the champagne of which he presently boasted. Awake, eh? he greeted Lanyard with a mirthless snarl. You've slept like the dead man I took you for at first, my friend. A solid fourteen hours, my word for it. Feeling better now? Lanyard's essays to reply began and ended in a croak for water. The Prussian nodded, disappeared, returned with an aluminium cup of stale cold water, mixed with a little brandy. Champagne, if you like, he offered, as Lanyard, painfully propping himself up on an elbow, gulped like an animal from the vessel held to his lips. We are holding a little celebration, you know. Lanyard dropped back to the pillow, the question in his eyes. Celebrating our success, the Prussian responded. We got her, and that means much honour and a long furlough to boot when we get home just as failure would have spelled. I don't like to think what. I shouldn't care to fill the shoes of those poor devils who let the Assyrian escape them off Ireland, I can tell you. Something very much like true fear flickered in his small eyes as he pondered the punishment meted out to those who failed. So the U-boat was homeward bound. Strange, one noticed no motion of her progress, heard no noise of machinery. Where are we? Lanyard whispered, peacefully asleep on the bottom, about five miles south of Martha's Vineyard, waiting till it is dark enough to slip into our base. Base? The Prussian hiccuped and giggled. On the south shore of the vineyard, he confided with alcoholic glee, snuggest little haven heart could wish. Well to the north of all deep-sea traffic, and the coastwise trade runs still further north through Vineyard Sound, other side of the island. Not a soul ever comes that way, not a soul suspects. How should they? The admirable charts of the Yankee coast and the geodetic survey, he sneered, 
show no break in the south beach of the island between the ocean and the ponds but there is one the sea made the breach during a gale our people helped with a little trotile tides and storms did the rest now we can enter a secluded landlocked harbour with just enough water at low tide and lie hidden there till the word comes to move again three miles of dense scrub forest all privately owned as a game preserve fenced and patrolled between us and the nearest cultivated land and friends in plenty on the island to keep all our needs supplied petroleum fresh vegetables champagne all that just the same we take no chances never make our landfall by day never enter or leave harbour except at night he paused contemplating lanyard owlishly ought not to tell you all this i presume he continued more soberly though the wild light still flickered ominously in his eyes but it is safe enough you will see for yourself in a few hours and then either you are all right or you will never live to tell of it we radioed for information about wilhelmstrasse number twenty seven just before dawn after we had dodged that damn yankee destroyer ought to get an answer to-night when we come up heavier footsteps rang in the alleyway the prussian made a grimace of dislike here comes the commander he cautioned uneasily a great blond viking of a german in the uniform of a captain shouldered heavily through the doorway and acknowledging the salute of the rat-faced subaltern with a bare nod stood looking down at lanyard in taciturn silence hostility in his bloodshot blue eyes how long since he wakened he asked thickly with the accent of a bavarian a minute or two ago why did you not inform me the tone was offensively domineering thanks like enough to drink nerves and hatred of his job and all things and persons pertaining to it the subaltern coloured he asked for water i got it for him the commander stared churlishly then addressed lanyard how are you now very faint lanyard said truthfully but he would have lied had it been otherwise with him it was his book to make time in which to collect his thoughts concoct a bulletproof story plan against an adverse answer to that wireless inquiry can you eat drink a little champagne lanyard nodded slightly adding a feeble please the bavarian glanced significantly at his subaltern who hastened to leave them who are you what is your name dr paul rodiak your employment personal intelligence bureau confidential agent what were you doing on board the assyrian lanyard mustered enough strength to look the man squarely in the eye pardon he said coldly you must know your question is indiscreet i must know more about you it should be enough lanyard ventured boldly to know that i set off that flare as arranged at risk of my life how came you overboard in the scuffle caused by my lighting the flare so you tell me but we found you half clothed lacking any sort of identification am i to accept your unsupported word my papers are naturally at the bottom of the sea in the garments i discarded lest their weight drag me down if you have doubts lanyard continued firmly 
it is your privilege to settle them by communicating via radio with 79th Street. He shut his eyes wearily and turned his head aside on the pillow, confident that this reference to the headquarters and secret wireless station of the Prussian spy system in New York would win him peace for a time at least. After a moment the commander uttered a non-committal grunt. We shall see he prophesied darkly, and went away. Later, one of the crew bought Lanyard a dish of greasy stew and potatoes, lukewarm, with bread and a half-bottle of excellent champagne. He ate all he could stomach of the first, devoured the second ravenously, and drained the bottle of its ultimate life-giving drop. Then, immeasurably refreshed and fortified in body and spirit, he turned face to the wall, composed himself as if to sleep, shut his eyes, adjusted the tempo of his respiration, and lay quite still, wide awake and thinking hard. After a while somebody tramped into the cubicle, bent over Lanyard inquisitively, and, satisfied that he slept, retired, taking away the empty bottle and dishes. Otherwise his meditations were disturbed only by those echoes of revelry in honour of the late manifestation of the Hun's divine right to do wanton murder on the high seas. The rumour waxed and waned, died into dull mutterings, broke out afresh in spurts of merriment that held an hysterical note. Once a quarrel sprang up and was silenced by the commander's deep and pleasant tones corks pop spasmodically. Again there were sounds much like a man sobbing, but these were promptly blared down by a phonograph with a typically American accent. When that pulled, a sentimental disciple of frightfulness sang Tannenbaum in a melting tenor. Everything tended to affect an impression that all, commander and meanest mechanic alike, were making forlorn efforts to forget. Devoutly, Lanyard prayed they might be successful, at least until the submarine made her secret base. If too much alcohol was bad, too much brooding was infinitely worse for the German temperament. He remembered one U-boat commander who, returning to the home port after a conspicuously successful cruise, had been taken ashore in a straitjacket. Lanyard himself did not care to dwell upon those scenes which must have been enacted on board the Assyrian after the torpedo struck. Deliberately ignoring all else, he set himself the task of reviewing those events which had led up to his going overboard. One by one he considered the incidents of that night, painstakingly dissected them, examined their every phase in minute analysis, weighing for ulterior meaning every word uttered in his presence, harking even further back to reconstruct his acquaintance with each actor from the very moment of its inception, seeking that hint which he was convinced must be somewhere hidden in the history of the affair, waiting only recognition to lead straightway out of this gloomy maze of mystery into a sunlit open of understanding. In vain, there was an ambiguity in that business to baffle the keenest and most pertinacious investigation. The conduct of Cecilia Brooke alone bristled with inconsistencies inexplicable, the conduct of the German spies no less. 
to get better perspective upon the problem he reduced the premises to their bearer's summary a valuable dossier brought on board the assyrian no matter by whom had come into the possession of british agents with the knowledge of captain osborne thackeray had secreted it in that fraudulent bandage german agents apparently under the leadership of baron von harden had waylaid him knocked him senseless unwrapped the bandage but somehow probably in the first instance through the interference of the brook girl had overlooked the document subsequently the brook girl had found and entrusted it to lanyard no matter why he on his part had exerted his utmost inventiveness in hiding it away nevertheless it had been discovered and abstracted within an hour by whom not improbably by the brook girl herself repenting her impulsiveness after leaving lanyard with the captain from whom she had doubtless learned the truth about monsieur duchemin she might well have gone directly to lanyard's stateroom and hit upon the morphia file as the likeliest hiding-place without delay thanks to prior acquaintance with the proportions of the paper cylinder but why should she have assumed that lanyard had not disposed of the trust about his person not impossibly the thing had been found by the first officer of the assyrian searching by order of the captain as lanyard assumed he had but if mr ward had found it he had not reported his find when telephoning to captain osborne or else the latter had gone to great lengths to mystify lanyard there remained the chance that the paper had been stolen by one of the two german agents by either without the knowledge of the other if baron von harden had found it necessarily before lanyard returned to the room he had subsequently been at elaborate pains to conceal his success from both his victim and his confederate why did he distrust the latter again why if karl had been the thief it must have been after lanyard's return and while the baron was preoccupied with the task of keeping the prisoner quiet to let the search proceed in that event karl had lied deliberately to his superior why because the document was saleable and karl intended to realize its value for his personal benefit not an unlikely explanation nor could this be called the first instance in which the prussian spy system admirably organized though it was had been betrayed by one of its own agents this hypothesis too accounted for that most perplexing circumstance of all the murder of baron von harden the lanyard was fully persuaded that had been nothing less than premeditated murder in no way an accident of faulty aim even the most nervous and unstrung man could hardly have missed six shots out of seven point blank a nervous man indeed could hardly have gained his own consent to take so hideous a chance of injuring or killing a collaborator it appeared then that one of four things had happened to the cylinder of paper miss brooke had taken it back into her own care in which case lanyard was no more concerned captain osborne had secured it through mr ward this however lanyard did not seriously credit 
it had gone to the bottom when the Assyrian sank, with the body, among others, of Baron von Harden. Or Karl had stolen it. Privately, indeed, Lanyard rather inclined to hope that the last might prove to be the true solution. He desired earnestly to meet Karl once more on equal terms, and the more counts in the score, the greater his satisfaction in exacting a reckoning in full. But he anticipated that chapter might only too possibly have been closed forever by the hand of death. As yet he knew nothing concerning the mortality of the Assyrian debacle. He had not inquired of the officers of the U-boat, because they knew little, if anything, more than he. Their glasses had discovered to them trouble with the lifeboats. They had spoken of one boat capsizing, of people going overboard like cattle. There must have been many drownings, even with a United States destroyer nearby and speeding to the rescue. A single question troubled Lanyard greatly. Officers and crew of the U-boat had betrayed profoundest consternation upon the advent of that destroyer, presumably a warship of a neutral nation, and that same ship had without hesitation fired upon the submarine. Was it possible, then, that the United States had already declared war on Germany? It seemed extremely probable. In such event, these Germans would have been notified instantly by wireless from the New York Bureau of their country's secret service, whereas Captain Osborne, receiving the same advice by wireless, might reasonably have kept it quiet, lest the news stir to more formidable activity those agents of the Wilhelmstrasse, whose presence among the passengers he must at least have strongly suspected. Presently the closeness of the atmosphere began to work upon Lanyard's perceptions. In spite of his long rest, a new drowsiness drugged his senses. He yielded without struggle, knowing he would soon need every ounce of strength and vitality that sleep could give him. The din of an inferno startled him awake. Those narrow metal walls were echoing a clangour of machinery maniacal in character and overpowering in volume. Clankings, tappings, hissings, coughings, clatterings, stridulation of a wireless spark, drone of dynamos, shrewdish scolding of diesel motors developing 2,000 horsepower, individual efforts of some 2,000 valves, combined, or declined to combine, in a cacophony like nothing under the sun but the chant of a submersible underway on the surface. Lanyard, gratefully aware of a current of fresh air sweeping through the hold, rolled out of his bunk to find that while he slept clothing had been provided for him, rough but adequate, heavy woolen underwear and socks, a sweater, a dungaree coat, trousers of the same stuff, all vilely damp, and a friendless pair of oil-sodden shoes, the sweepings of a dozen lockers, but as welcome as disreputable. Dressed, he turned aft through the alleyway, entering immediately the central operating room and storm centre of that typhoon of noise, a wilderness of polished machinery and active being, of the score or more leather-clad machinists, silent at their posts, 
none paid him more heed than a passing incurious glance as he crossed to a narrow steel companion ladder and ascended to the conning tower this he found deserted but its deck hatch was open he climbed out to the bridge the night was calm and heavily overcast with no sea more than long slow swells through its windless quiet the u-boat racketed with the raving abandon of the spirit of discord on a spree in a boiler factory to the riot of its internal strife was added the remonstrance of waters sliced by the stem and flung back by the sides a prolonged and stertorous hiss like the rending of an endless sheet of canvas to eyes new from the electric illumination of the hold the blackness was positive with the palpable quality of an element relieved alone by the dull glow of the binnacle housing the gyroscope tell-tale from which the faintest of golden reflections struck back to pick out a pair of seemingly severed fists gripping the handles of the bridge steering wheel with a singular effect of desperation for some moments lanyard could see nothing more the mirthless chuckle of the lieutenant sounded at his elbow so the good herr doctor thought he had better come up for air eh my friend the very dead might envy you the sincerity of your slumbers we have been half an hour on the surface with all this uproar and you are only just wakened half an hour lanyard repeated thoughtfully then we should be close in give us ten minutes more if we don't go aground in this accursed blackness a broad-shouldered body passed between lanyard and the binnacle momentarily eclipsing its light down below in the operating room a bell shrilled and of a sudden the diesels were silenced the dead quiet that followed the sharp extinction of that hubbub was as startling as the detonation of high explosive had been through this sudden stillness the submarine slipped stealthily the hissing beneath her bows dying down to a gentle sibilance from forward the calls of an invisible leadsman were audible in response the commander uttered throaty orders to the helmsman at his elbow and those unattached hands shifted the wheel minutely lanyard started to speak but a growl from the captain and a touch of the lieutenant's hand on his sleeve cautioned him to silence there was a small pause the vessel seemed to have lost way altogether to swim like a spirit ship that stygian tide the lieutenant moved forward leaving lanyard alone the voice of the leadsman was stilled by the wheel the captain stood absolutely motionless his body vaguely silhouetted against the glow of the binnacle the hands that gripped the wheel so savagely were as steady as if carven out of stone an atmosphere of suspense enveloped the boat like a cloud lanyard grew conscious of something huge and formidable a denser shadow in the darkness beyond the bows the loom of land off to starboard a point of light appeared abruptly precisely as if a golden pin had punctured the black blanket of the night the captain growled gutturals of relief and command the hands on the wheel shifted steering exceedingly small a second light shone out to port then shifted slowly into range with the first till the two were as one 
again the bell sang in the operating room and the vessel forged ahead quietly to the urge of electric motors alone a third light and a fourth appeared well apart to port and starboard the range of lights precisely equidistant between them between these the u-boat moved swiftly they swam back on either hand and were abruptly extinguished as if the night resenting their insolent trespass had gobbled both at a gulp the temperature became sensibly warmer and the salt air of the sea was strongly tinctured with the sweet smell of pines and forest mould up forward carbon spluttered and spat a searchlight was unsheathed and carved the gloom as if it was butter ranging swiftly over the tree-clad shore of a burnished black lagoon picking out en passant several unpainted wooden structures then steadying on a long and substantial landing stage on which several men stood waiting end of chapter 9 recording by steve chilvers norwich england